the Vatican knew about Father Gagan. They knew about so many pedophiles. You have the richest, most powerful institution in the world. It deals in trillions of dollars every day and is, is tax-exempt in so many ways. They wield their power and influence. It's a culture of sexual abuse gone on for centuries. An innumerable number of victims have told me over the years, you're the first person I ever told in my life because I think you believe me. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. In 2001, the Boston Globe Spotlight investigation team began to look at disturbing allegations surrounding the Catholic Church and its cover-up of sexual abuse of children by known pedophile priests. Mitchell Garabedian, a Boston attorney, charged that Cardinal Bernard Law, the Archbishop of Boston, knew about Father John Gagan and his sexual abuse of children and did nothing to stop him. At the time, it was believed that this investigation would reveal the story of one priest who was moved around several times. However, attorney Garabedian and the spotlight team began to uncover a pattern of sexual abuse by other priests in Massachusetts and an ongoing cover-up by the Boston Archdiocese that rose to the very upper echelons of the Catholic Church. The investigation led to an outpouring of stories from survivors nationwide who had been abused by priests and it brought to light many secrets that the Catholic Church has buried, hoping to keep forever in the darkness. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm your host, Renee Williams, and joining me today is that trailblazing attorney who has fought for years to uncover abuse within the church, Mitchell Garabedian. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. Can you give us some background on you? 
Hello, I'm attorney Mitchell Garabedian. I have offices in Boston, Massachusetts. I've been representing clergy sexual abuse survivors and sexual abuse survivors since 1994 across the world, in the United States and various countries in the world. And it's an honor to represent survivors of clergy sexual abuse and sexual abuse. It's an honor to be allowed to stand on their shoulders and try to make a change for society. And you were really one of the first attorneys that got involved in these clergy cases and really have been one of the trailblazers in these cases against the Catholic Church and the wrongs that it was doing to these victims. So could you just tell us how did you first get involved in these cases and, and how many survivors do you think you've represented over the years? Well, in 1994, a woman who I had represented in various matters, I've been practicing law for about 41 years, uh, contacted me. And she said, my three children, they were ages approximately 12, 10, and 8, um, were acting out in very strange ways. And I had represented her, as I mentioned, various matters, uh, general matters in the law. And, and one child, for instance, the youngest child was washing his hands every day till they bled. And another child was taking showers, but the showers were two hours long. And, and the third child, the oldest child, was no longer wrestling with his younger brothers, but he was actually being kind of violent with them, uh, physically tough. And, and she said, can you speak to these children? Because they never used to do that. And I knew these kids. I mean, they were, they were good kids. And I spoke to them and I discovered that um, a priest was putting them to bed at night, Father John J. Gagan. And when he was putting them to bed, he was sexually touching them. When he would buy them ice cream in the car, he was sexually touching them. And this woman lived in the projects outside of Boston. And, uh, and, um, before I knew it, other women were coming to me with the same issues about their children. And the common thread was Father Gagan, Father John J. Gagan, putting these children to bed at night or buying them ice cream or taking them on little road trips and sexually abusing them. And all their personalities changed. And before I knew it, I had approximately 80 victims of Father John J. Gagan um, who are representing uh, because of the sexual abuse. And they were all children. And many of them came from these projects. And some, and, and Father Gagan didn't stop there, of course. He abused uh, relatives of these children, their cousins, for instance. And that's how it started in 1994. I kept on doing my work in 1994, 1995, and so on before I filed suit. Um, it was truly an eye-opening situation. Were you able to sense a pattern or an MO of Father Gagan? Were there specific children he targeted? Yes, and that's a very important question. It's an excellent question. These children were fatherless. Their father was absent from the family for a variety of reasons, maybe because of alcoholism, maybe because the father was working two or three jobs a week, 
Maybe the father had just abandoned the family, but they were fatherless families. And that's a very important question. And Father Gagan, like pedophiles, all pedophiles were very clever. They knew that these children were vulnerable. They knew, they knew he knew that the, the uh, mothers were overwhelmed, just trying to keep the family intact. He knew that he had access to these children and he used the guise, the facade of religion to gain access and sexually abuse these children. He was a criminal and the supervisors who allowed it were criminals who allowed the sexual abuse. How much did the church know in his specific case? At the time when I confronted the church, they acted they, like they were surprised and shocked, and they didn't know very much at all about Father Gagan's history. But during the course of litigation, of course, especially when I gained access to the canon law secret files, the 489 archives, the 489 files, it was shown that the church knew that Father Gagan had been a sexual abuser for decades. Um, the, the records showed, the secret files, and actually called secret files on the canon law, showed that Cardinal Law knew that Father Gagan was sexually abusing children, yet he sent him to St. Julius Parish in Weston, which is right outside of Massachusetts, an affluent community, without warning the public, without notifying the police, without putting any protective measures in place. And Father Gagan continued to sexual abuse in Weston. And after that, Father Gagan was in a retirement home down the street here near the Massachusetts General Hospital, where he continued to sexual abuse children. So the father, so what you have is a situation of sexual abusers, like Father Gagan, sexually abusing and supervisors being complicit in the cover-up from the top down, from Cardinal Law, Cardinal Bernard, Bernard Cardinal Law down. And I'm guessing Father Gagan never faced any type of disciplinary action. Oh, Father Gagan was prosecuted by one of my clients. He received the maximum sentence and he died in prison. He was murdered in prison. And uh, because of that, his criminal record was was um, was made vo was void. It was nullified. It was voided, and many victims had emotional problems with that. But he actually was tried here in Cambridge, outside of Boston, for sexual assault of, of one of my clients. He received the ten-year, the maximum sentence, ten-year prison sentence. And while his case was on appeal. He passed away, and the law in Massachusetts is if your case is on appeal and you pass away, then your record is wiped out, it's clean. But Father Gagan was a criminal, and when I say they knew from top down, I'm not only talking about Bernard Cardinal Law, but based on my experience, the Vatican knew about Father Gagan. They knew about so many pedophiles. But again, I, I'm, I'm so appreciative of victims and survivors coming forward and, and letting me stand on their shoulders, because it takes an enormous amount of courage for uh, a survivor to make that phone call, to transform themselves from a victim into a survivor, and to be bold enough to talk about the sexual abuse. It absolutely does. I want to 
go to the future very quickly because then I do want to talk about these past cases because I think it's important to establish how this all came to light. But Pennsylvania, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania in 2018 released a 200 page report detailing three of the largest dioceses in Pennsylvania and one of the shocking things to me was that even when these priests were in prison, at least in Pennsylvania, that their bishops were still sending them money to their prison commissary. Do you know if that practice was common in Boston as well? I just thought of that as you were mentioning that Father Gagan did die in while waiting for trial. Um, I think it's I think it's common. I think it's done in odd ways. Uh, you know, like the Catholic Church, you pick a diocese or an archdiocese, they have five or six corporations. So the archdiocese, the diocese, diocesan corporation, uh, archdiocese corporation may not directly send money, but they'll set funnel it through another, um, another entity, another corporation. And, and you'll notice, for instance, in these criminal trials with priests and in the civil trials with the priests, they have very expensive lawyers. And you have to wonder if, if, how they're how they're being how these lawyers are being paid and and, and I'm I'm the church is paying for the it, it's an open secret the church is paying for, for the defense of, of these of these pedophile priests and their supervisors um, whether it be through funnel through another corp, a corporation that's affiliated with the church or the church itself now going back when you first filed these cases against Father Gagan, they didn't get a lot of media attention at first, but it really shook the church to its core because as we talked about, this was known in a lot of cases, but it was never talked about, it was never mentioned. So can you walk us through what a case would have been like back then? What did you initially face when you were filing these? Well, you know, you raised an interesting point. You said the cases didn't get a lot of attention. They really didn't. Um, some news reporters, thought I was just exaggerating the magnitude of clergy sexual abuse. And other reporters thought I was making it up. Um, and I've had reporters apologize to me through the years. And I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't seek an apology. There was no uh, rift between us. But they'd apologize. They'd come up to me and say, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, when you told me about the clergy sexual abuse crisis, I thought you were just puffing. I thought you were exaggerating. And others have said, and said, I'm sorry, you know, I gave you such a hard time at that press conference, but I thought you were just making things up. I didn't realize that it was so bad. And I credit them for being so honest. And, and you know, they really, the media played a big part in the in opening up the clergy sexual abuse crisis and exposing it you know look at the boston globe spotlight team they did a fantastic job but it's very important to note that i think the media was calling you not calling you a liar but they believed you were exaggerating but the church knew about the the depths of this how did it stay hidden for so long let me first clarify, a minority of the media thought maybe I was exaggerating, a minority, um, a small amount. Uh, the church deals in secrecy. Secrecy is a common thread which allows the church to 
keep these matters secret. When a child is sexually abused, the priest tells the child, if you don't keep this a secret, your mother will be punished or your dad will be divorced or you're going to be injured in life. And the child believes that because the child is listening to what the child was taught was the voice of God on earth, the priest. Then if a parent does report it to the church, to the pastor, let's say, or to a monsignor, that, that parent is told for the sake of the church, you cannot tell anyone about this because you don't want to damage the image of the church. Then the canon law actually states that when clergy sex abuse, sexual abuse cases are looked into, they shall be kept secret. And I mentioned the 489 secret files or archives. Those are files or archives that contain the damning evidence, the damning information, the damaging information or evidence, which indicates what the priests knew about pedophilia, uh, who the pedoph pedophiles were, the treatment centers they were sent to, the responses, the correspondence back and forth. So you have the common theme of secrecy all overridden, all permeated with religion because the child thinks God is mad at them because they didn't enjoy the sex. And if they tell anyone the, the, the sexual abuse and if they tell anyone, they'll be punished by God. The parent is told by the priest, you know, I'm the representative. The parent is told, listen, you can't tell anyone. And the parent thinks he's listening or she's listening to the voice of God on earth. And they, they have secret files. So you have the combination of not only secrecy, but religion. And, and this is not about religion. It's about stopping the criminality, stopping criminal conduct. But I think importantly, stopping the church from placing money over the very people that it is meant to protect. So in these cases in the beginning, because of all that, we know so much more now about the secret files, about what their playbook is. What could a victim expect back then if they chose to file a case? What, what mountains did they face? Statue limitations were very, very difficult in Massachusetts at the time, and we were testing the statute limitations. What also, comp what also was a, a strong tool the church used in, in secrecy is the use of confidentiality agreements. For decades, the church was saying to victims or survivors, I'm going to give you X amount of dollars, but you have to sign this confidentiality agreement so you can never talk to anyone about this, except, of course, for the police or therapist, um, because that couldn't be prevented. But, but, but the church was using confidentiality agreements to silence the victims to keep the matter quiet. So that was a layer on top of all the secrecy I, I just described. It's very important to note. And we were discussing as a barrier, the statute of limitations and the church, I think it's important for folks to know, is still using the secrecy to run statutes. So there's recently a Pennsylvania Supreme Court court case that came out, Mrs. Rice wrote to the church and said, I was abused by this priest. And they wrote back to her knowing full well that he had abused, 
Um, but they wrote to her that they had no record of it, that, they, he, that she was an isolated incident. It had never happened before. Well, when the Pennsylvania Attorney General's report came out, it came out that this priest had abused multiple times. And so she tried to go back to the church and sue them to say, no, you did know, and you did have a duty to protect me. And they said, sorry, your statutes run. So they were using that secrecy to block her on the statute so that her statute would run while lying to her. They, they, the church is very well skilled with that. Um, they'll delay the matter till the statute runs not only civilly, but criminally so that no one can be prosecuted either criminally or civilly. Your point is well taken. The church is calculating. Sometimes people will approach me and they'll say, I can't believe that priest stole $50,000 from that parish. How can you, uh, who would believe that? I said, well, if they're raping children, and I don't mean to sound so harsh, but if they're raping children, otherwise sexually abusing children, and their supervisor is allowing it, why would you be surprised if a guy was stealing money too? I mean, take away their robes and their religion, and they're just criminals. Mm -hmm. Not only the, are the perpetrators, the sexual abusers, but the Bernard Cardinal laws who allowed it to happen, the supervisors who allowed it to happen. And it's so permeating that a parent would tell a child, would go to the pastor and say, my child was abused by a priest. Then in Boston, for instance, they go say, go see a vice chancellor. Um, and, and the vice chancellor, the child will go see the vice chancellor and the vice chancellor, uh, Monsignor Ryan, he would sexually abuse a child. Jeez. That was their response. The, it, it's just the, the criminality. You have the richest, most powerful institution in the world. It deals in trillions of dollars every day and is, is tax ex exempt in so many ways. They wield their power and influence. If you read the McCarrick report, which was issued by the, by the uh, Vatican, which was sanitized by the Vatican too, McCarrick used to have hobnob with pre pre presidents, uh, Clinton, George W. Bush, I mean, president after president. At page 34 of the McCarrick report, there's a footnote. To see the FBI wanted to recruit, recruit Cardinal McCarrick to be a counterintelligence agent with the KGB. That's how ingrained they were with the US government. That's how powerful they were. In the 80s, the, the, uh, the, the, the law started to open up and say, you can start to look at wrongful conduct. And that's what we did in Massachusetts. We, we used that. We said, you're right. You can, we're not looking at just conduct. We're not looking at belief. We're looking at wrongful conduct. And the, and the judge over the course of three years would let us get documents. And every time we got documents, it would lead to a request to more documents. So after three years, we got the secret files, which was just a flood of paperwork, tens of thousands of pages, just about Gagan. Never mind the document dump after that about all these other priests. And while I was doing the Gagan work, somehow my name got out through, through just the limited publicity in the very beginning. And I started to get calls about other priests like Father Mahan. So, you know, it, it's just Paul Mahan. I've had 155 Gagan clients. The terrifying thing about that number of 155 clients 
is that we know that only 10% of clients, only 10% of sexual abuse victims usually come forward. So how many more victims could there be out there? It's endless. You, you can't even put a cap on it. I, I don't disagree with you, but you can't even put a cap on it. I'm one lawyer, 155. There are many other lawyers who've had other cases involving Dagan, for instance. I had my, uh, my coverage of him over 30 years in five or six different parishes. Um, then I mentioned the retirement home. You know, it's just, it's endless. And he was allowed to do it. He was you did not, the word within the Catholic Church, and I learned this through discovery, was you did not speak out against Father Gagan because if you did, you would have to deal with his uncle who was a very iron-handed monsignor. You did not do it. There was a priest by the name of Darcy. I, I, he spoke out. We had a document. He wrote a letter to Cardinal Law saying you cannot let this continue. The next week, Darcy was shipped from the Archdiocese of Boston, which was a prestigious position, out to a small diocese in Indiana. He was gone. I, I want to talk about those confidentiality agreements. Yeah. How, how were they presented to families? And was there money exchanged or was it, what, what, what were the confidentiality agreements? Well, um, confidentiality agreements, basically, in a nutshell, say, I'll give you X amount of dollars, but you can't talk about this ever again, except to the police or your therapist. It has to be kept confidential. It's a contract. So there was money exchanged. They, they were oh, trying yeah, to buy yeah. folks off. Oh, yeah. Millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, in neg negotiations with the 86, I had 86 Gagan cases I was mediating. Um. They asked me to sign confidentiality agreements. That's one reason the mediations took so long. And I refused. My clients refused. They wanted confidentiality agreements signed. Those days were in 2002, the National Catholic Conference of Bishops stated that confidentiality agreements will no longer be used. And I, I believe they also stated, it's not as clearly, but retroactively, the, the confidentiality agreements that were signed before 2002 were no longer in effect. Um, they, they, were, they were voided. So I think that's very important to note. Um, in the very beginning, when I started handling gagging cases, I signed a couple. I signed a few confidentiality agreements. Then I said, wait a minute. What is this? This doesn't make any sense. Because the church was at, the church's lawyers were acting like this was just the course of business. There was nothing alarming about this. I thought originally when I went to the church with these cases, they'd, they'd be alarmed and they'd want to do something. They'd want to gig and, you know, tossed out of the church. They'd want to process. I was really naive that they'd want to do the right thing. And they were like, oh, wait a minute. No, no, here's some money. Okay. Don't worry about it. And, and then I said, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And then mm -hmm. other victims of other priests, as I mentioned, started coming forward to me. I said, this doesn't make any sense. They couldn't care less about these children. They, they, they were just like um, businessmen. 
did your victims want to continue going to the same churches? As we discussed, these were parishes where the priest was God on earth, but but they are very close parishes and everybody knows everybody. And we've seen there's protectionist, um, both in the congregation and from the staff. So did your victims want to continue to go to church? And if they did, how were they received in their parishes? Um, religion is really a force that, that has caused a lot of damages to the clients here. Um, they're taught from day one as children, the survivors are, that the priest represents God on earth. The priest can do no wrong, and the priest is God's messenger. And that's ingrained in them. They're known as cradle Catholics. Their mothers go to church every day, not just once a week, every day. And their fathers go with them on Sundays. And if they said anything about the priest, they get a backhand in the face. And this was back in the 80s, the 90s, the 60s, 70s. And so they were torn up about church across the spectrum. Some were atheists, some were agnostics. Um, some tried to go to church but couldn't do it. Um, some would worship on their own in their own private spaces. But, you know, there's another component to church that is very important to note, which the survivors missed out on. And that is the sense of community, the sense of belonging, the sense of seeing your relatives and your friends. I've had so not only not go to church on Sundays, but I've had so many survivors wait outside of the church during the funeral, wait outside during the wedding. They couldn't go in. People have invited me to like weddings at Catholic churches. And I, I've told them I can't go in there. I know eight boys who were raped in the altar. I'm, I'm not going to, I could go in, but I'm not going to go in. I mean, and after I tell them that they don't even have their wedding at, at the church. But it's just like, you know, it's very complicated. Um, there's a sense of belonging that is that is gone, and it's and it reinforces the alienation that a survivor feels when they've been sexually abused. They don't trust anybody. They don't they don't believe in God. They have self esteem issues. They believe everything. They when when the thoughts of abuse are triggered, they revert back to that age when they were abused. I mean, they have, I can't tell you the number of um, arms I've seen where they've been cut or people who have banged their head against the wall or put cigarette butts out on, butts, butts out on their arms. Never mind the washing of their hands till they bleed or um, the loss of hair or... or um, so many damn physical physical evidence so much physical evidence never mind the emotional evidence it's just overwhelming and, and it suicide is just horrible the suicide rate is just horrible um, and i want to so mention that you've said how brave these victims are for coming forward and this is just a glimpse into what they experience before even coming forward um, and then coming forward. But I think there's an important note to be made that 
their bravery continues throughout the lawsuit. And I think a lot of people see lawsuits as just a way to get money. And the general public has no idea what a victim goes through while in a lawsuit, including depositions and including the media attention and the character slandering. So I wanna talk about how did the church respond to your victims after the suits were filed and how did they handle these cases with you initially? You're dealing with people who preach morality yet sexually abuse children and allow it to occur. That's what I'm dealing with. I'm not dealing with priests who are holy, who, who want to do the right thing and who slipped up one time. It's a culture of sexual abuse gone on for centuries. And so I'm dealing with entities that want to win their case, who want to put spin control in the media and say, uh, where the victim, the church is the victims. Garabedian's making this up. I'm dealing with lawyers who represent them, who are fighting tooth and nail in court. And, and did they, we often see folks engaging in victim blaming, and that's hard to do with children, but was there a level of victim blaming or victim shaming that they brought out, or was it just bury it in secrecy? Well, first of all, um, there isn't, the public does not have to make much of an effort to make a victim feel ashamed or blamed because victims feel as though the sexual abuse was their fault because they didn't like it. They blame themselves. They have zero lack, zero self-esteem, zero self-respect. They are totally ashamed and embarrassed of the sexual abuse. An innumerable number of victims have told me over the years, you're the first person I ever told in my life because I think you believe me. I've told other people. They don't, I've told my mother, she hit me. My father punished me. I, I, I've told my friends, they don't believe me. A man came to me who was 87 years old. He was abused in 1937. This was the last item on his bucket list. He was abused by a priest. And, and I said, why are you coming forward now? He said, because if I came forward earlier, other people in my life would know about it, but everybody's passed away. So I just wanna, I want, I wanna state it now. And he was found credible within six months. And within six months, he passed away. And he was fairly healthy before then. I asked him, and did you tell anybody in 1937 or 1940 that you were sexually abused? And he said, if you told anybody in 1937, 1940, you were sexually abused by a priest, you would have been murdered. And he wasn't exaggerating. He says, you, in 1938, 1937, you couldn't tell somebody you were abused by a priest, you would have been murdered. That's the stranglehold the Catholic Church had on society. And they have the scars and the operations to prove that they were in the accident. They have the photos. They have the police showing up at the scene, but they don't remember the accident because their mind has done themselves a favor. Do you, have you seen a change with Pope Francis coming in or do you believe that there is no changing the church now? I get asked this question all the time. And it's a good question. It's an important question. 
the change is coming from outside the church in substance because of advocacy groups like yourself very important group victims of crime center uh, because of advocacy groups and lawyers and victims coming and survivors coming forward allowing us to stand on their shoulders the public is now aware you have to watch your children when they're in the custody of, of priests or other adults you just have to watch your children because your children are not safe is the catholic church changing no they're they're changing their tone but there's no substance behind it what programs have they put in place the, the Diocese of Springfield announced that they had an independent uh, advisory board determined that they're going to have new rules. Well, they paid that board. And the, so it's, the board is not independent. And it's the same priests who allowed the sexual abuse to occur for decades who are going to be implementing any changes, which will not be made, by the way. They always announce these. Boston, the Archdiocese of Boston announced program years ago, but they were voluntary, so very few parishes adopted the programs. The change, there's no change coming from within the church. If it is, it's so slight, but they're trying to say the right things now, but there's no change. As we're talking right now, as listeners are listening right now, Children are being sexually abused by priests and supervisors are allowing it to happen. I'm now seeing the victims, the survivors from the 1990s come forward who are just old enough to start to come forward or even early 2000s. A few of them have started to come forward saying, I was abused by this priest in this town at that parish. We all know that victims or survivors of sexual abuse, clergy sexual abuse, cannot come forward until they're at least 45 years or older. But I'm starting to see some 30s, individuals in their 30s and even late 20s start to come forward, which is what I always see. But because of the lack of change within the Catholic Church, because of the Catholic Church now concentrating more in Africa and South America, because of, the, because of these, these younger people coming forward, I'm seeing that, that uh, there's no change within the Catholic Church. I handle the Simmons, Hanley, Conroy cases in Haiti involving Douglas Perlitz. He was at a Jesuit school in Haiti supervised by Father Paul Carrier. We sued in federal court. We eventually settled it for more than $60 million. Um, we sued in federal court. Otto Romalto was involved. Fairfield University was involved. Um, the Jesuits, Father Paul Carrier, Douglas Perlitz received a 20-year federal jail sentence on a plea for sexually abusing these children. These, this Catholic entity knowingly allowed this pedophile to sexually abuse hundreds of children. We represent over 150 victim survivors, but there must be many more. And because, and my point is these children were young when they reported the abuse. My point is the Catholic Church has moved to the disadvantaged countries where they can do this. With it without it with the scrutiny in the United States, it's continuing, and I'm sure it's continuing in the United States right now. 
So Mitch, we've talked so much about what survivors go through and their bravery in doing this. At the end of the day, what is it they're seeking? Why are they doing this? Every survivor I've ever represented, whether it be church-related, private school-related, whatever the case, they're all seeking validation. They all want to know that the abuse was not their fault. That adult man or woman who was sexually abused, who's courageous, who's, who, who, who is brave, wants proof that the abuse was not their fault. They're all seeking validation. They all should be so proud of themselves for coming forward. It's very important that that, that be noted. There is no amount of money in the world that would ever give back a survivor what was taken from them, what was stolen from them. I've had victims who were low middle class receive six-figure settlements and call me and say, you know that money you gave me? Yes. Well, I gave it to a charity because I really didn't want the money. It was about validation. It's about the victim standing up, standing tall, being proud, being strong, and being a voice. Because in coming forward, they're not only um, they're not only trying to heal themselves, but they're helping other victims come forward and try to heal and making the world a safe, safer place for children. And it's honored to represent them. And I think to your point, especially, and you might want to say a few words about this as well, but because of those early clients coming forward, look at the change that has come. So it's terrifying, but look at what change you are making to make the world better. You're ensuring that this won't happen to children again. Maybe it's just with one priest, but that they can't hurt people anymore. Well, that's what survivors really want. They want to, they want to empower themselves, empower other victims, and make the world a safer place for children. And if I can help them, it is an honor. If we can prevent one child or one adult from being sexually abused, it's all worth the effort. Cannot emphasize enough how much of a trailblazer you've been and, and how grateful centers like the National Center are for all of the work and dedication you've put um, into your clients. Thank you very much. Those are kind words and it's humbling to represent victims. They give me so much in exchange for representing them. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.